live and on lockdown. Are you ready? Broadcasting from Edinburgh, Scotland and across the globe. Listen here. You're listening to Ramsey Unleashed, going beyond borders podcast. The host, Fraser Ramsey. Hey, this is Afia Letham, creator of the Frame Your Day app, helping you walk out every day in victory. I'm proud to be a sponsor of Ramsey Unleash, going beyond borders. Hi, this is Zakia Ringgold from NaturalSoapByZakia.com, proud sponsors of the Ramsey Unleashed, going beyond borders podcast. Good evening, good morning, good afternoon, wherever you are in the world. You're another edition of Ramsey Unleashed, going beyond borders podcast. I'm here with a recommended guest via uh, Jamie Bowles, sorry, I should say Jamie Knox uh, from WJMS Media, now married, uh, Dr. Barry Perlman, 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 I've got Perlman. it right, Perlman. After, yes. this, after this, it's just Barry, but it's Dr. Barry Perlman, and then when we converse, <laughs> let's just do Barry. Just do Barry, okay. <laughs> so from a, a, a retired doctor to, uh, but we're going to, Lots of general. He's got memoir. He's written memoirs. He's written uh, more psychology. He's also been interviewed via the Scottish Family Party already. Uh, it was a connection. And it's just taken my moment to be a little bit unbusy and to uh, finally schedule this in. Uh, it's just sometimes when you're mad busy and you kind of like, oh, you kind of a bit of a tiz and you tend not to. <laughs> Before you know it, you just, ah, time. You just can't do anything. But now, we're finally here. We're finally having the opportunity to interview him. And he's, Barry is uh, based in Manhattan in New York. Uh, so another, I like my New York connections. So even people might be able to tell that. Uh, but it's all good. So Barry, uh, welcome to Ramsey Unleashed Going Beyond Borders podcast. Uh, how are you doing today? How's your day going so far? My day is going well because I'm on with you. That's making <laughs> my day. How, how was your experience after the connection of the being on a political podcast type show? How was your uh, experience with that? It was different <laughs> because they had me on with another guest, which I hadn't expected. But I, I hope it went well. And I think you saw it. So mm -hmm. uh, you might have some opinions about that, too. But I thought it went fine. No, it's good. It's, it's good to have a bit of a, um, I suppose when you're doing something like that, it's good to have a bit of a back and forth on the on the on the chat when you're doing something with a different opinion which can make it interesting but let's let anyway, not waffle on for me <laughs> but if those you know I, I have I was given by my mentor some constructive criticism of my podcast because I kind of am pretty much free flowing and I tend to just go with the flow uh, so try and structure a little bit and um, behind the scenes but I do have some general questions given to me by Barry which is good uh, but we're gonna um, just dive in really so tell us about you've well for those who are watching or who are listening on a podcast we are using StreamYard, streaming through facebook youtube and twitch and in the view barry has a copy of his book but he's going to describe his book uh, and we're going to talk about his uh, his, me his memoirs first and then we can dissect to his medical he's a medical career how it all kicked off and what made him go down the road he chose to go down so uh Barry, uh, tell us about your book, which is in the background behind you, and your, the memoirs that you've written, and talk about them, please. Uh, I'm happy to do that. When I retired, I kept trying to think about how can I pass on to my grandson, to my kids, how can I let them know 
what I'd been doing for the last 45 or 50 years as a workaholic. Uh, I assume in Scotland, as here, a lot of doctors work too long hours, as many people do. So the idea of writing a memoir, something for them to tangibly hold in their hands <clears throat> and be able to know something about what I devoted my life to, I thought would be worthwhile. And it's interesting because I've written lots of articles for journals and medical things, but I never wrote a personal thing previously. What finally allowed me to do it, because maybe there are some people in your audience and listening who have also thought of doing it, I thought all of a sudden of a three-part structure where I would start out with a quote or some memory for the first part of a chapter, then I'd elaborate on it, and then I would make some kind of comment on it or pull it together in some kind of synthesis. And once I hit on the idea, then the book really flowed. And over the next, it, it took a couple of years, but over the next couple of years, it fell together. Uh, and then last April, it finally got published. So I was thrilled. It's up on Amazon. It's up on a few other places. And it's um, really been a delight for me because it's allowed me to meet a whole slew of people I otherwise wouldn't have met, like you, Ramsey. But it also coincided with my 50th anniversary of my graduation from medical school. So it became a nice sharing point with my classmates as we were reminiscing and thinking about the four years, which were pretty intense. Medical school's a very different kind of experience in in growing up, it allowed us to reminisce and think back on some of the very important milestones uh, in the formation of a doctor. And in my case, then the formation of a psychiatrist. Well, let's uh, think. So I'm guessing you would <laughs> graduate if it's been 50, 50 years. I'm guessing probably you graduated in 1972. I graduated in 71, so you're a pretty good guesser. Well, okay, so 71, because I thought maybe because when you picked, because no, I was born last year. I was <laughs> born, I was okay last year. <laughs> I was I was born in I was born in 1975, so that's why I kind of guessed the three the, the 50 it, years it, almost. It, you know, I have to tell you a funny story, and this is somewhat mm -hmm. divergent, but what the hell? We got a new director of our emergency service at the hospital where I was the head of psychiatry and then the medical director. Right. And he had gone to the same university, it turned out, that my wife had attended. When I heard that, I said, you know, my wife went there. And he said, what year did she graduate? So I told him, and he said, that was the year I was born. So I really felt old at that point. <laughs> so, so let's, so for those who might be watching or whatever they're watching from, and listen, let's dive in. I mean, you, Good. what did you do? I mean, tell us a bit about your background. Were you always a New Yorker or were you kind of, where were you uh, born in, in America? Uh, I've always been a Manhattanite. I've moved Manhattan. 20 blocks in my life. Um, but while I've stayed planted on the Upper West Side, as it's called, of Manhattan, the city around me has changed a lot. And I've always loved it, dynamic. And now I'm hoping it's going to make a good comeback from COVID, uh, which really hit it pretty hard. But to go back... Uh, how do you get into medicine? How do you make that choice? And then how do you get into a specialty? People may be curious about that. As it turns out, when I was young, 
mm -hmm. elementary school age. My grandmother suffered from really intractable depression. She was okay. hospitalized in psychiatric hospitals a number of times. Most of the modern medicines that we use in treating people these days had not yet in, been invented. They were just starting to come around. So she actually had electroconvulsive therapy at that time, which was helpful to her. I think as a consequence of my grandmother's illness, which impacted our family in a number of ways. One way was that my mother and her sister spent a lot of time away from home trying to take care of their mother who was struggling. The other is that there wasn't much in the way of health insurance uh, for psychiatric illness in those days. So there was a significant burden on the family trying to uh, find the resources to take care of my grandmother. And then in those days, people would, if they were in the hospital, stayed for a considerably longer time than they do now. And so when you left the hospital and came back home, went back into the community, it was a real transition. And my mother got involved with an organization in those days called The Bridge. That was a metaphor for going from one place to another, from the hospital back to the community. And she became very involved as a volunteer in that. Interestingly, a million years later, I was on the board of a organization which publishes two newspapers, Behavioral Health News and Autism Spectrum News, to help people and families uh, with members who have those problems. A new member joined the board, and he was the executive director of the organization my mother had helped start back in the 50s called The Bridge. So at our second meeting, he brought in minutes from the 1950s. And there on the page, it gave my mother's name as Mrs. Samuel Perlman. Today, of course, she would have had her own name, Eve Perlman. Uh, and it, it, it was kind of a, an interesting piece of history to see how things have progressed for women across the decades. Uh, so that's that's a large part, I think, of why once I went to medical school, I became interested in psychiatry. So what so what was the what was the the different? So she was introduced to Samuel Perlman, but her name was Eve. So what was what's the connection? How was why? Was oh, what I'm saying is, in the 1950s, a woman was known by her husband's name. Right, I got you. Now. Sorry, I got you now. Yes, so she right. was yes. on the on the minutes yes. of that organization. She her name was. Mrs. Yeah. Samuel, I, I, I realize, um, I yeah. realize they are clicked, yeah, because uh, some people to this day can be called or re referred to as their husband's name uh, to this day in, in some some sort of circumstances. Yes, right, I, right, yes. So that's cool. Yeah. So psych psychiatry, you're you're leading there. Sorry. Well, <laughs> yeah, no, that that's good diversion. That's interesting. And I mean, there, there used to be an ad for some product for women years ago called "You've Come a Long Way, Baby." <laughs> and when I saw these minutes and thought about what you and I just talked about, yeah. I thought of that ad. You've come a long way, baby. She have her own name now. Exactly. So tell us about, um, so tell us about these minutes that have been read out. And obviously well, so that was just a nice kind of coincidence. Yeah, okay. But what I was going to say about choosing a specialty okay. is obviously any doctor is going to go into something that interests them intellectually. But also, it's not uncommon for it to have a personal connection. Let me give you an example. 
When I was in medical school, we had an orthopedic doctor, a bone doctor, who was missing a leg. So when he came out of the operating room, he would take off his prosthetic leg and he would hop into the shower. We had a neurologist who had a foot drop, which is a neurologic condition. We had a hematologist who had a clotting defect in his blood. His blood didn't clot properly. And we even had an ear, nose, and throat doctor who had an embryological defect, which led to his not having an external ear. So I won't talk about why people go into psychiatry in a personal way, (laughs) but you can make your own summation from those kind of things. Yeah, they kind of You pick something that that interests you and has a personal connection to you. And I I think mine was very personal because uh, I was alone a lot as a kid because my mother was off taking care of her mother. Right. Okay. So uh, so. Were you are you a lonely child or are you? Uh... I'm an only child. Right. Okay. I, mean, I was I was born part of a twin, but what would have been a sister, uh, it turned out was a stillbirth. I learned later on. Right. Okay. So to hear that, uh, who? So while while your mum, your mother was looking after her mother, who was were you with? Were your dad around or was? Oh sure, and my mother was around. It's just when you're a kid, you'd like more attention, not less, and so she spent some time because she had to visit her mother in facilities or make sure she was taken care of because she just didn't function well on her own. Her mother had been left as of quite a young widow with three young daughters. My mother was the oldest child and was 14 years old when her father passed away, her father having been an architect. So I kind of lost my train of thought there completely. You know, when you think of something, you just suddenly it disappears. <laughs> anyway, um, let's say I'm just I'm trying I'm trying to think. I'm thinking. I'm listening. I'm thinking too much. That's my not. I think I'm just trying to change my structure a little bit. Maybe it's just not working. But anyway, um, so what made you go? You chose to go into psychology, and what kind of Let's tell us the kind of path okay. from there and what, sure. why. And obviously, you've briefly touched on your mum and why personal to you. Uh, and it sounds like the people you're working with were certainly a lot of, yeah, different, <laughs> different shapes and sizes and parts missing and not developed, right. and et cetera, et cetera. Which, uh, but that's so I'm guessing as this group of people that you worked with, tell us, dissect or sure. Sure. You know, obviously, as I said, there are intellectual reasons one picks a field. I liked and was interested in psychology and psychiatry. Mm -hmm. There was a personal reason, which I hope as you treat people well, other families wouldn't uh, experience what what I had lived through as a kid, um, which wasn't terrible. I had a, a fortunate upbringing in many ways. But as a child, you're not as aware of that. You don't have that perspective. And then when I got to medical school, one of the most charismatic professors, there were a number of wonderful, wonderful teachers. One was a professor, for example, of neurosurgery, who was just the most exciting guy, but neurosurgeons never left the hospital. And at some point I realized that wasn't the life I wanted to lead. But another was a professor, Thomas Dietrich, um, who was, absolutely charismatic and a pioneer in the field of biological psychiatry. And what 
that's talking about is this was in uh, the late 60s, and we were just beginning to learn about neuropharmacology, the kinds of drugs, the kind of um, treatments um, which could help people uh, with intractable depressions, with psychosis, if they suffered from schizophrenia. Lithium was just beginning to be used. That had been first um, used in 1948, but because lithium is a naturally occurring salt, it couldn't have been patented. So that was slow in coming on, but there was really a revolution. And what that revolution in uh, psychopharmacology did was rather than letting people or forcing people to languish for years in state hospitals, as we would call them in the United States, I assume there were similar institutions uh, in the UK and Scotland, uh, suddenly because of these treatments, people's courses of illness um, became marked by acute worsening where they might need to be hospitalized for a few weeks, but they didn't need to spend their lives in institutions in the same way that they previously had. So it was a very, very exciting time. And Professor Dietrich, who was a mentor and just a wonderful, wonderful teacher, uh, was really inspirational. And that's another part of what leads people to pick a specialty, who inspires them. And he was inspirational. So your career was obviously unfolding um, and you're especially as you just described as and with obviously with all the medicines and the coming in, people don't have to be locked up in a, well, in the hospital, uh, but they can be more out and about more. Well, carry on with your journey as in just your, as you learn in your role of psychology and how in the people you kind of helped and the people, the things you learned. I mean, in the 60s, this is like way before my time. <laughs> but, and there's a person who's watching who might know as the guy who does another podcast. In fact, he's our podcaster. He's called the Guy R. Cook. Sorry, Guy Cook. He's dropped the R. But Guy Cook, and he does the Guy Cook podcast. Um, he's based out near, not Walla Walla anymore. It's like I've forgotten. But it's near the opposite side to you, the West. Um, and uh, yeah, he, he's uh, in his 70s. So he'll be uh, kind of knowing that era thing. So, sure. Uh, you know, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to insert one thing. Okay. Uh, as Because you use the word psychology often, and I want to make clear that my career interested in psychology, but I am a psychiatrist. I'm so sorry. And the, yeah, no, I think it's just important for the audience because when they see a psychiatrist, certainly in this country, um, that person has the full array of tools. They can do therapy with patients, uh, work with them psychologically, but also have the ability to prescribe, okay. and that's an important tool. This is a, a this is even though I'm interviewing this, it's a good educational podcast that for me as well. It was just quite I'm, lear- I'm listening and learning. I'm trying to dissect. This is like a bit of a dissection here. It's quite intriguing. Just the, the ins and outs of psychology, psychiatry from then way back in the sixties and the the, the 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 progress of your learning and what you did. So just. I'll let you talk and just because it's fascinating. Okay. Just, just from, tell us a bit about well, your 60s era of being say, a psychiatrist. Okay. Tell us the kind well, of the, the kind of things that you developed in, the things that you 
that you you briefly gave me some questions about you talked about like tests that you did on people and the kind of um just the things that, that maybe happened then you maybe think of I don't know what I'm gonna say maybe out of a 70s or 60s kind of movie or black and white movie or something or TV program but I'm just I'm just saying now you're like okay so I'll, I'll let you I'll let you tell us a bit more about the, the 60s era of okay. your psychiatrist psychology. Look, look. You know, let's go through it. You know, a lot of books that doctors write are about my three interesting years that I was in training or my internship or my 12 best cases. And what I tried to do when I wrote Rear View was to give someone a sense of the entire arc of a professional's career. So in medical school, obviously, we do training in many fields. You take courses in, in, and spend time in medicine, surgery, obstetrics and gynecology, psychiatry, and so on. And I had the good fortune, by the way, um, in 1969, I guess 1970, of spending uh, my time at University College Hospital in London doing my rotation in OBGYN. And that was very different being under the National Health Service in those days uh, compared to what American medicine was like. Okay. Because uh, as you all know, you started to have the National Health Service after the Second World War, um, and that allowed everybody to have access to medical care. In our country, that remains a fight right to this day, even with the passage of the Affordable Care Act under the Obama administration. Well, sure, just to go over a slight side swipe before you go into it. Sure. sure. With, what, looking like, obviously, we pay our national insurance, which covers our health over here. So that right. kind of comes out, you're sort of like your, ta your tax at the end of the month when you get paid. Right. Obviously, in America, the health side is very much, very money orientated so you have to have your health insurance like you have your insure your car for example and that can be from different from well, the lowest to the i don't know is it quite expensive or quite depending on you know we you, have a, we have a checkerboard over here which is very inefficient right okay so, so in during the second world war and its outgrowth afterwards the hmm. uk moved to the national health service okay in the united states what happened during the second world war was that wages were frozen for workers because they didn't want inflation to occur. But right. one of the things companies could do was offer health insurance. Right. So because of just sort of a fluke of the way things happened economically during the war, a vast part of America receives its health insurance connected to its place of employment. Right. Um, and that is inefficient. It also ties people sometimes to their jobs if they have pre-existing conditions. They may not be able to change jobs because the new work won't allow them then to be covered for those pre-existing conditions. In the 1960s, when Lyndon Johnson was president, Medicaid and Medicare uh, came into existence, and those permitted the elderly, like myself, I'm now insured under Medicare at the age of 77, Good grief. And most people would be you've got a, the hair, well, you can say you've got a full head of hair, you're not even 
Oh, it doesn't seem much gray. And uh, most of the most of the teeth are mine too. <laughs> um, <laughs> seven, most people at seventy seven are like over here they're like sheet white or gray and there's nothing much left and it's kind of well, like I have to say it's natural. It's natural. That's good. In in any event, so now we had older people and people with disabilities who get covered, and we had poor people who could get covered. But there were a lot of people, uh, millions and millions of people in this country who didn't qualify under the Medicaid program because they weren't poor enough, didn't work, so they weren't covered through their jobs, weren't old enough or disabled, so they weren't covered by Medicare. And that's the cap that, uh, that's the group that under President Obama, they tried to cover with the Affordable Care Act, which took a tremendous step towards broadening coverage. But the point is, we still have a system that's very much cobbled together and is not universal. And so even under Medicare, which I have now, it's very expensive because I have to buy uh, insurance to cover the 20% that Medicare would not for medical bills, hospitalization, and that kind of thing. Uh, and so we have a very inefficient system. But I'm not going to spend my whole time discussing that piece. I'll so just you, say that so when yeah, go. I'm sorry. So you prefer if there was a if there was a UK system like we have in America, you'd probably be more a lot more functional rather than more dysfunctional. I I think it would. What worries me a little bit, and I think that the National Health Service, from what I read in the popular press, so I'm not an expert on it, has also suffered from budget crises over the years where uh, legislators haven't appropriated adequate funds and that's led to issues. I, I don't know what the perfect system is, but certainly I would prefer a system that allows everyone in the United States or requires everyone to be covered. Yeah, well, um, it would be a lot easier because it means, I mean, it is handy depending on what part of the UK you're in. You can just walk in if you need the treatment. Absolutely. You can walk into a hospital and you can get treatment. There's no, there's no money. It's all already paid for technically because it comes like your national insurance anyway. So you just walk in and walk out. That's what a system. And not worrying if you go into a hospital in America, you don't worry if you got insurance. If you got this and you can't get treated, you might end up. Yeah, or you or you end up with just a bankrupting uh, debt afterwards if you do exactly. Get it. It's about about maybe it's just got to that stage. It's very money orientated, and the big companies are cashing in. So yeah, well, there's a lot of private equity money flowing into healthcare these days, and yeah. that to me is one of our biggest worries. But you know, it's interesting to go back. One of my memories of my time at University College Hospital, and I love being in London for two mm. months and. Um, meeting my English counterparts and going to neurology grand rounds at Queen Square Hospital, which was legendary. But one of the things I remember, which again, worried me about it, was that families used to bring in protein, meat, and so on to the patients in the hospital. Protein is very important for surgical healing. And the National Health and Service apparently didn't have an adequate budget to give adequate protein to patients in the hospital. So that was also something that was a concern. So as I say, I, I don't know what the perfect system is. I'm fortunate in this country to get first-rate care. I've had a number of medical problems. I have good access. I have 
wonderful doctors, uh, but it's costly and not everybody has that kind of access. But, but to go back a little bit to my journey through medicine. Yes. So I, I, I'm in medical school. I have wonderful teachers in psychiatry, and I decide to do a residency in psychiatry. And that's when I moved back to New York. I had been away for eight years, four years as an undergraduate and four years um, for medical school when I was in New Haven. So I came back to New York. And again, the teachers you have are just so important uh, because learning medicine is certainly book learning, but it's also changing your role model, in a way changing your persona. It's changing who you are. Um, before you go to medical school, you cannot walk into a room and start asking people the most intimate questions about their lives and expect them to uh, give you a respectful answer. Right. Okay. Or you can't go into a room and expect people to disrobe to be examined by you. So you really have to um, begin to develop a medical sense of yourself. And in a way, it, it, it's hard. It's, it's not easy. Sometimes I would almost find myself laughing inside and saying, who's this guy asking these questions? Who's this guy examining, uh, you know, when I was back in New York at Bellevue doing my internship, asking an ambassador from the United Nations to uh, disrobe for me so I could examine him and so on. <laughs> and, you know, it, 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 I kept saying, is that me? And then it becomes you eventually. I remember wearing a white coat into a supermarket in New Haven <laughs> once. Um, and, and some lady came over to me, you know how the, in the supermarket people wear white coats. Yeah. And she asked me where the vegetable section was. <laughs> and, you know, she didn't see me as a doctor, neither did I. Uh, and then it, it's interesting. I remember examining a patient once and he said, how old are you, doc? And I guess at that point, I was about 27 years old when I was what's called an intern, my first year after um, medical school. And he said, I bet you're not a day over 35. And I said, you're absolutely right. I'm not a day over 35. But it also was a teaching moment for me, because when you're a patient, when you're putting your life in someone's hands and they're going to be making serious recommendations to you, yeah. about what comes next when you're feeling ill or have a significant illness, they want to perceive you as mature. And so in a way, while you're adapting a persona as a doctor, a new personality, a new way of being, it's made easier by the expectations of the people around you who are putting their trust in you. And when they're putting their trust in you, they need to perceive you in a certain way as well. So they kind of help you along. Okay. So I was going to just think, is that during your sick time in the 60s, and can you, are you able to give, is that you've got a sort of vast career of 50 years, but uh, that each sort of decade, let's, in the 60s, what was your, can you give us an example of the type of people that you treated or their conditions that in the 60s? Because obviously in the, Situations in the 60s will be different in the 70s, 80s, and, and up until because of the, how things advance, maybe, or in medicine? You know, you know, I think yes and no, Ramsey. 
Okay. The illnesses stay pretty much the same. Right. Uh, the big revolutions in psychiatry really took place in the 50s, 60s, 70s. Okay. There have been some advances in uh, biological treatment since, but psychiatry demands very integrated treatment. And some of the advances have really been not so much in the biological aspect, right. but in the rehabilitation aspect. Okay. So let me let me just talk about a little bit about training and a little bit about the idea of rehabilitation. Okay. Um, one of the things you have to learn when you're training is, I think, to be non-judgmental. Mm -hmm. uh, you may see a person who uh, is is maybe disinclined to trust you, and you have to present and take good care of them. You maybe see people who you know philosophically, politically, and other ways disagree with the way you see the world tremendously, but they still have to be treated. It, it's as though um, doctors in wartime have to treat prisoners just as they treat their own. That's important core piece of medical ethics. And you have to know how despite what's going on with you, you are truthful with people. I had a wonderful teacher in, in my residency. Uh, he was a wonderful, wonderful therapist. And I remember towards the end of our time in medical school, he was dying of prostate cancer. Right. And he continued to see his patients. There weren't the treatments for prostate cancer um, in the early 70s that there are now. He might have survived considerably longer today. But his patients knew that he was dying. And since losing people is an important part of all of our lives, it confronts each of us at some point. Parents die, people we know become ill, uh, move away. He used his own life, which was really quite, I think, astounding and inspirational for his students, such as myself, um, to watch him use his own illness to help people his patients deal with their own uh, feelings about loss and separation. So he used himself as an instrument of treatment. Uh, but many of the diagnoses, as I say, stay the same. There are people with schizophrenia today. There were people with schizophrenia then. What's changed, as I was intimating to you uh, earlier, is that many of the people don't need to spend a substantial extended periods of their lives in institutions. They can be in the community with good supports. If they take medicines which control the uh, psychotic symptoms, the delusions, the hallucinations, the, the thought disorders of schizophrenia, then they can be worked with and um, hold jobs that which their capacity allows. And I think that comes back to the idea of rehabilitation. I think what medicine strives for, whether it's psychiatry or physical medicine and rehabilitation, where they're dealing with people after strokes or people who deal with persons with retardation, is to help each human being, each individual, attain as much of their own potential as they can. So back in the 70s, people who might have not been able to walk, paraplegia. They would be languishing at home. Today, the society provides them with an ambulette each morning, which can ferry them to the office, 
where their good brains can let them do a day's work and uh, be citizens like the rest of us, doing something useful, contributing, paying taxes, being part of the common wheel of our societies. And that's the goal, whether it's with people with psychiatric illness or with physical illness. And I think it's an awfully important construct for all of us to keep in our minds. I'm, I'm, I'm quite intrigued. I don't know, I'm not sure what that actually actually because I'm just intrigued listening. I'm actually quite just like, as you die, as you talk about it. But let me. I'm looking at let's have a look at some of your questions that you sent me because it's quite. I'm just intrigued as you're telling the story. I'm sure people who are watching or, and listening are, are intrigued as well. It's just a dissecting a life of a psychiatrist. Uh, um, Would you like me to float on? Well, I was going to say what you let's say. Let's. Let's talk about that. You went to Mount Sinai. Let's talk about Mount Sinai. When was that? Um, okay, so let's, let's I, uh, go, yeah, we can okay. come back and we can float around. Sure, sure. You've got a lot of information here. Sure. And just sure. to, this is quite maybe a learning curve for many of us in okay, understanding so, psych, the psychiatrist side of things. Let's I'll, talk go about back, I'll go back one further. As I okay. said, I was in medical school in New Haven. The school okay. was Yale, Yale University School of Medicine. And mm-hmm. the reason I ended up getting to spend eight weeks in London and this is interesting historically, is that we had a lot of English doctors who were fleeing the National Health Service. They wanted to make a better living, which American doctors were doing very much so in those days. And the doctors who came to my medical school and other places in the country, fleeing the NHS, to be frank, um, were the ones who set up the kind of underground railroad for those of us who were interested to go over to England and spend time in English hospitals, which we loved. So that was the sign of an interesting thing is how many doctors left the UK in those days to come to America where where they saw streets of gold, as they would say. Okay. Um, So then I went from uh, medical school, did my internship, which is one year at Bellevue. And I mentioned that just because in this country, at least, Bellevue is just a very famous it's a city hospital in New York, which has seen everything from the admission of Norman Mailer to many people when they're down and out. It's the center of kind of crisis management in New York. And I'll tell you a cute anecdote about my year at Bellevue. Uh, a guy came in one night when I was on call. He had much better clothes on than anyone else we had seen at Bellevue. Really nice jacket, good threads. And he had sort of a square jaw, and he wore half-rimmed glasses, and he said his name was Michael David Rockefeller. Now, you may or may not remember the story of Michael David Rockefeller. He was part of the Rockefeller family. His uncle was the governor of New York and then vice president of the United States. And Michael David Rockefeller was an anthropologist who was lost uh, in Papua New Guinea. Never seen again. He was there studying the tribes. So my ears perk up. I knew about that book that had just been written about him and his disappearance. And I thought to myself, my God, if I discover a missing Rockefeller, I'm in like Flynn. Life's going to be grand. <laughs> so I knew I knew in my heart of hearts that he was someone who needed admission, that he was delusional and so on and grandiose. So I admitted him to Bellevue. 
But right after I admitted him that afternoon, I called up a very well-known bookstore in New York because I had asked him about the book that was written about him. And he had said, you know, now that I'm back, it's been removed from the shelves. So I called up this famous bookstore, Brentano's. I said, do you have this book about Michael David Rockefeller? They said, of course, it's right on the shelf here. And at that point, I knew that um, he deserved to be admitted. And I knew the Rockefeller family wasn't going to be grateful to me for finding their lost relative. So wow. a bit of reality jumped back into my life. But Bellevue was an unending stream. And after just a few days there, you felt you had seen every serious psychiatric illness that could be imagined. It, it was fantastic. Wow. So I'm, <laughs> so I'm, just, I'm enjoying yeah. this. It's intriguing. It's just, uh, it's, I'm, I'm not, usually I can just go with the flow and ask and float around questions, but I'm just listening. This is quite okay. good. I, I'm just, uh, <laughs> well, so, tell, tell us about that. Well, we did say about the Mount, Mount Sinai. How did you? Sure. So that my, after my year as an intern at Bellevue, yeah. I, I, uh, went to Mount Sinai, where I was going to spend three years as a resident learning psychiatry. And it was a great three years. It, it was an academic medical center. Uh, so there was a lot of intellectual challenge. The teachers were good. The program was first rate, and it really made me want to be a professor. Okay. At least that's what I thought. So when I finished my residency at Mount Sinai, I was accepted onto the faculty. Right. And I thought, this is great. And I stayed on there from uh, 75 to the end of 80, about five years. Okay. And I realized, even though I love teaching, that being a professor wasn't for me. I just am not a heavy duty research scientist. Right. OK. Um, but I did stay. And it was interesting. Some of the good stories I put in the book uh, were from during those years. I had uh, one young woman. I still remember her very, very well. And I had come back from summer vacation and I was admitting her to the hospital. Uh, she had schizophrenia. And uh, I asked her to st stick her tongue out because that's part of the neurologic exam. I asked her, to, she wouldn't do it. I said, can you copy me? And I went, and she wouldn't do it. No. Anyway, I couldn't understand what that was all about. And then she began to recover with the medicines. And she said, um, Dr. Perlman, why did you stick your tongue out at me? And I said, well, because I was doing an examination. But what I hadn't realized is how insulting that had felt to her in her confused state. Almost like when we're kids and you're nasty to someone, you stick your tongue out at them. Yeah. And so... It, it was an interesting learning experience um, in terms of understanding how we have to decenter when we're working with patients of any sort, but certainly in psychiatry, in order to gain a perspective on how they view the world, not on how we expect it to be viewed. Years later, when I had gone to St. Joseph's Medical Center as director of psychiatry, Mm -hmm. I was teaching some residents and we were sitting with a young person. I think it was a woman, but it may have been a fellow. I don't remember now. And he said that it was his birthday. So all of the residents were eager to wish him happy birthday. That's the normal human, in, you know, instinct. 
If today were your birthday, Ramsey, and you mentioned it, I'd say, Ramsey, happy birthday and many happy returns. That would be the courteous thing to do. Correct, but yeah. this, this <clears throat> patient got very upset. Okay. And later on, after we had left the patient and I was sitting with my residents and teaching them, they some they said, you know, we did what we thought was right. We wish this person a happy birthday. And I said, yeah, you know, you have to remember, maybe when you had a birthday as a kid, your parents celebrated it. Maybe you got a gift or two. Maybe they bought a birthday cake for you and sang happy birthday and you blew out the candles. But maybe for the person we were interviewing, their birthday was always ignored. And they always felt envy for the other children whose families celebrated birthdays. So it was another good example of the fact that we have to decenter. What's commonplace for us may not be commonplace for the other person. Oh, yeah. That's interesting. Mm. Yeah, no, I thought I thought it was very instructive kind of a uh, of a tale, you know. They say, and it sometimes almost sounds trite when doctors say you learn as much from your patients as they learn from you. Mm. And so there are a lot of these kinds of stories. I had a very interesting lady years later. She loved seeing me because she could go out and tell her friends she was seeing the director of the department. She was a former heroin abuser. Mm-hmm. And she was being treated at our methadone program. She also had some psychiatric issues and that's why I was seeing her and what was interesting is I felt very fearful for her she was a very very decent human being despite having had a life of inordinate inordinate amount of struggle and she now was stable on methadone she was living in an apartment she got benefits so she was supported but she was the kind of person, if someone were, were in trouble, she'd give you the shirt off her back. And what she wanted most was to get off methadone. And I really resisted that. I just was so scared for her because the statistics on people who leave methadone, who start to use heroin again, uh, is really um, problematic. So we spent a lot of time discussing it together. And then finally I said, look, you want to do it? We're going to do it. That's it. So we worked with her methadone program. She was weaned off the drug. And I saw her for years after that, and she never went back to heroin. And I was so pleased because she always thought of it as one of the greatest victories of her life, that she wasn't on any drug either one that doctors prescribe to help her deal with her addiction or the drug to which she was addicted. For those, it really was, just a quick day saying, for those who, obviously, sure. no, just a quick, quick, for those who don't, on, obviously the reason, like, what's the diet, what's the reason, obviously for those who are on heroin, and what does methadone, for those who don't understand, what does methadone, methadone do to sure. heroin, heroin, <laughs> got teeth are out of my teeth. Heroin addiction. Yeah, methadone is another um, opioid, okay. but it can be taken in a very controlled way. Each morning, a um, person would come into our clinic, they would take a little orange juice, and they wouldn't have to be on the street looking for drugs, and they right. wouldn't have cravings. 
And there were other drugs that have come along since that permit people to not come to clinics on a daily basis. But the point was that for many in the addiction community who were recovering from addictions, what they objected to was the idea of substituting one addiction for another. And I think to respect this woman who, who I saw over many years, um, she felt that way. And I think that explains the pride she felt when she was no longer on the street buying heroin, prostituting herself to get the money to get the heroin or in exchange for the heroin, stable then on the methadone for years, then comes off the methadone and remains stable. What a sense of pride, what a sense of wonderful achievement she had. And I have to say, I shared that with her. So you, you have to very much respect, even though I was worried for her, we took a chance, it worked out and it was the right thing to do. You know, another example of that kind of thing, I had a woman who had severe postpartum depressions. Right. And she had had two children. Each time she delivered, she was really unable to care for them very well herself for about six or eight months afterwards because her first uh, her postpartum depression took a long time to treat that. It was very difficult. So she came to me one day and she said, I want to have another baby. What do you think? And I have to say, I put on my skeptical hat. Right, okay. I said, you know, you've got two great kids. You're caring for them well. The likelihood is if you have a third one, you'll go through another severe period of depression. Maybe leave well enough alone. So we talked about it. She was a fairly um, vigorous advocate for herself. And ultimately, she was free. So she had a third child. And unfortunately, she had a third significant postpartum depression. She couldn't really take very good care of any of the kids that time for probably about 10 months till she began to recover. Oh, yeah. But at the end of the day, a year later, knowing everything, I said to her, so what do you think? Was it the right decision? And she said, yes, for her, she really wanted to have a third child. And despite what she went through, which was very, very difficult and challenging, she was pleased with her decision. So I have to respect that. So a lot of what you do with the people you treat who come to you for care, in addition to giving medicines, helping them to explore their own conflicts and difficulties, is also a kind of negotiation in which you have to very much respect their wishes at the end of the day. Uh, you have to work with them so that they make good decisions or the best decisions that will be acceptable to them. But it doesn't always mean they will agree with your suggestions. And you have to live and work with that. Have you, you've dealt, what we talked briefly, you touched, you dealt with people with schizophrenia or depression. Was there any other type of illness that you dealt oh, with? Sure. Or any other, other, other examples you can give us? Sure. Uh, one of the most challenging, uh, and I'm going to bring this uh, maybe towards my retirement since we're getting along, uh, people with bipolar illness who need lithium or uh, other anti-seizure meds which help to control their moods, often people with a certain degree of high mood mania, 
uh, they want to get rid of the depression. It's, it's called bipolar illness for a reason. They can be very high or very low. They would like to get rid of the depressions, but they love the highs. Right. And so that can also be quite challenging um, to get them to accept medications, which take away a part of their life, which they very much enjoy. Uh, now, at the highest point of the highs, it can be quite frank, frightening. They become really out of control. But if it's kind of what we would call hypomania, it's very pleasurable to them. They don't want to give it up. And again, that becomes a negotiation because um, it interferes very much with their function in life, their ability to work, their marriages, and so on. Well, so I, I was going to say, you know, I was going to say it's bipolar. Uh, obviously, it's more recognized now. But when when did it start to sort of be recognized during your time, like eighties, nineties? No, 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 no. You know, again, I'm I'm going to no? reiterate I'm going to reiterate okay. Ramsey what I said before. The diagnoses, right, okay. some of the always... names have changed, but these illnesses have been around so, forever. Oh, right. Okay, the, go ahead. The the Crapelin, uh, who was a very famous psychiatrist, describes these things back. The turn of the century, it was recognized for for you know very long time. It's interesting. The man who discovered the use of lithium to stabilize the mood of people with bipolar illness was an Australian doctor named Cade, and his paper was written and published in the Australian Journal of Psychiatry oh, yeah. in 1948. Now. Most doctors around the world, psychiatrists, did not subscribe to the Australian Journal of Psychiatry. Right. So it took a long time for Dr. Cade's findings to uh, circulate and become widely known and for the treatment to become established worldwide. So yeah. even in the 1970, uh, when I was in medical school, it was still a relatively new treatment even though it was um, more than 20 years after the original paper was published. But but these diagnoses have been around and the treatments have been around now for quite a while. So I, I think one of the interesting things is we've learned so much about neuroscience, right. but it's very hard to convert that into practical treatments for people day to day um, who come to their psychiatrist or the neurologist or whatever. Um, we've seen huge advances in cancer treatment. Uh, and that's really just jumped ahead in the last 10 or 15 years, whereas many of the treatments for psychiatry and the new treatments in recent years have really been modifications of pre-existing treatments. Right. Okay. It takes a lot to get to a revolutionary point in care in a particular field. Got you. It's, uh, for those who are watching or listening or whatever you are uh, tuning in from, uh, we're live and also you'll hear it on the podcast. And we are with Dr. Barry Perlman uh, in Manhattan, New York. Um, I'm just discussing his med medical journey from uh, sort of into psychology, psychiatrist, mm -hmm. uh, his internship. Uh, well, so inter, inter, yeah, in terms of starting out resident, that's, that's the word. So yep. different words. and residency, right? Re residency in America from the, back in sort of the early, and when he graduated in 1971, so these early days in, so we've been late 60s, 
starting out as a in the doctor fugitive of career wise. Um, but we're dissecting the kind of yes, um, it's for once I'm not really asking many questions, I'm just listening because it's quite it's di it's just understanding the dissecting the little bits of the years that he's in his career and he's we started off with talking about his book that he's written, but we will eventually come back to it when we come to the tail end of that. Uh, we're just going through the journey, the path, and how he went and with the connection of Mount Sinai. Um, yeah, it's and just the how illnesses have always been around, but the names have changed, and we're just I'm I'm learning and listening, and it's quite intriguing, uh, and it's intriguing just to dissect this through a, a psychiatrist's eyes over from best part of 50 years in practice or doing this um so yeah so let's we're i'm telling you you've, you've got you know, let, 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 let's jump ahead a little let's jump ahead yeah let's go to you talked about an advocacy of you, mental health you, did mental you know health. I, yep i think that's a very big piece i think even in the UK, now, yeah. you may have heard the word stigma yes stigma is the way people are looked down on who have mental health problems, especially severe problems. Yeah. So organized psychiatry through the American Psychiatric Association's work, I assume parallel work by the comparable organizations in England, have tried to let people know that it's number one, okay to be treated. It's mm. not a disgrace, uh, that it can help function, that can help stabilize families with good treatment. Um, and one of the, so we've come a long way in, in, in that sense in the last 25 years. Uh, more people are coming for treatment, more people are engaging in it and benefiting from it. But points and pockets of resistance still exist. For example, if you're in the military, certainly we know this in the United States, I'm going to guess it's not any different in the UK. People see if you go for treatment as being a weakness. And if you're in a weakness, then it may impede the progression of your career. The same with police departments and other groups of what are called first responders. Because soldiers, police, firemen, other first responders see some pretty horrific things in their lives. And it's not unusual for some of them to experience post-traumatic stress and we really want to get to the point where if that happens, um, people can come for treatment, not suffer alone, not take it out on their families. Uh, we know that military families for a long time, uh, it was not unusual for families to experience abuse when um, the service member was home and not on duty and, and living in, in barracks. And so... Uh, that's been a tremendous, tremendous effort of the mental health movement, I think, worldwide over recent years. And we've gained a lot with that. Now, in the United States, without national health insurance, mental health was always much less well insured, which is another enormous barrier to getting appropriate treatment. And in recent years, there's been a movement for what we call parity in the United States. And many states have passed insurance parity laws, as had the federal government. Uh, when President Bush, 43, signed the national parity law in 2008, we thought we were there. There's a saying the New Yorkers have, you ought to pass a law if something is not right. Well, we passed a law and then we all learned something. 
the companies don't come around and do what's right. So since 2008, there's been continuous litigation and a fight to implement properly the letter of the parity law and its spirit. Now, whether there's a comparable situation in the UK and in Scotland where psychiatric treatment is less well covered under insurance is just beyond my, my knowledge base, but we've tried to overcome that with very, very vig vigorous advocacy in the United States, first over uh, stigma, and then once people knew they could benefit from mental health treatment, to allow them to get the care they needed. And that's been really um, a, more than a decade of fight night now. It's more, I mean, over here, it's, more it's been a lot more recognized, especially over the last two years from COVID regarding people and how it's affected people and their livelihoods and right. that. Uh, and it's more recognized, but how, yeah, how, how well, I think there's a, because of COVID, as like any place, there's the backlog of things that have now going to have to get treated. So, and there has been a lot of people who have taken their own life to certain uh, in many ways so and it, which is uh not I, just due to what's going on over the last it's just and um, and yeah can't be helped unfortunately but it's, it's a sad loss for a lot of people you know as fact, i understand it the uk was very progressive and i'm not sure again how this applies to all of the uk or scotland but uh there's actually a cabinet level position that was created of loneliness because it was realized that people who are isolated yeah. um, are so vulnerable that that deserved national attention. And I think that's very much to the credit uh, of the government in the UK that, that yeah. did that. Uh, a lot of people are, yeah. There is many people who are lonely in their, in their own house and just nobody else. They don't see anybody. And they, it's a good thing to try and have that sort of befriend or, or befriend somebody who's lonely or kind of trying just to spend time with them, which was an incentive uh, during the time of the last sort of year or so, sure. uh, which is a good thing just to sort of prevent that anything, yeah, just to prevent these things happening or going for, for people who are struggling with that, you know. You know, I'm going to jump ahead. No, go ahead. We've got a lot. We're, we are, got a couple of minutes left, I guess. Because oh really no, I, I'm in. I'm in no rush. I'm enjoying oh, this. Oh good. Okay. Oh, well, good. I, I've got. I do. Well, yes, we're okay. We can go go for ourselves. Just keep talking. Okay. Well, we've talked a lot, and we probably could dissect in a lot more. But um, let's yeah, you're, let's talk about yourself. Latter year, the latter part of your career leading up to that's, you. That's good idea. To, leading up to you before you. You decided before you decided to uh, start again, leading up to the latter part of your career, uh, before you decided to retire on the, the day you said, Right, okay, I'm going to call it a day here. Let's say, let's do the latter part of your journey and and why you and what brought you to the choice of saying, Right, okay, it's time to call it. But I want to touch on also, you mentioned that you also that you, you were a workaholic, so i'm guessing how many hours the breed is that kind of person just constantly works because there's nothing else to do you know how for much for much of my career i was at the hospital before 8 30 i'd see right, my okay. first patient at 8 30 and i'd often get home four days a week about nine o'clock um fridays i tried to get home earlier and you know join the family for dinner right. the microwave was a very important part of my life because my wife would have to feed our young children well before their dad got home. 
And so they got a warm meal and I got a cold meal. And then the microwave was invented. So at least what I was going to get could be heated up when I got home. Uh, and then because I was very involved with the uh, Psychiatric Association, both here in New York State and nationally, that took uh, often a lot of time, evenings and weekends. Right. So that was my workaholic part. But I guess when I as director of psychiatry, I went along swimmingly. And then for the last three years, one of my younger colleagues, really, who was the head of our emergency service, um, sadly died in his 50s. Right. And we were always a struggling hospital financially. So I ended up being simultaneously the medical director of the hospital and the director of psychiatry. Um, also, for some other reasons, my department had increased enormously in size in those last three or four years because we had acquired the psychiatric department of another uh, hospital which had gone bankrupt. Right. So I was really doing a lot. And finally, uh, in, in, I guess, when I was um, 67 years old, I developed prostate cancer. Right, sure. And so I got through that. And then as I approached 70, my wife said, and she had never really objected to my working a lot. She was supportive of what I was doing. She knew I, she knew I liked what I was doing, but she said, you know, maybe it's enough. And so I had the thought, and this will lead to the later story, but I thought, well, maybe I'll have a big New Year's Eve party and call it quits. And then I noticed that my 70th birthday fell on a Friday, a couple of weeks into the new year. And I said, you know what? I don't want anyone to think I was a sluffer. I'll work till I'm 70 and make that my last day. And that's what I did. I retired on my 70th birthday. Well, what I was going to talk a little bit about, and maybe some of your viewers will face this in a few years, is what it means to retire. Because I talked earlier in our discussion about how you acquire the persona of being a doctor and have to take yourself seriously and Think of yourself as someone who others are reliant on. Well, now I was thinking of ending it all and pulling out. And that was pretty tough because now I think of myself as a doctor. And what's it going to be like when I'm not practicing medicine anymore? Okay. And so that was a hard decision. I made it. And then I had to speak with my patients who I was seeing and as I approached retirement and helped them transition to a new doctor uh, because many of them still needed the support. Some assumed that they would do that. Others w were thinking, well, I don't need this anymore. And I, some I agreed with that on. Others I thought, well, I think you really better be connected with somebody in case a crisis occurs. So we went through about five months of helping people uh, explore the idea of my leaving, since I had seen many of them over an extended period. And the, the variety of reactions was very interesting. I had one patient I saw, and the only way she had survived was to break off with her mother years and years and years ago, because her mother was a very cruel person. Right. And all of the siblings in that family to survive had said, we just can't have anything to do with mom. And it would always be tough on Mother's Day. My patient would feel guilty about not calling her mother. And we'd talk about it and strengthen her 
so she could make it through those um, holidays. And then when I told her I was going to be leaving in a few months, she just fled from me cold turkey, just the same way. And that was apparently the only way she could deal with it. I'd leave messages and say, please come in. We've seen each other, worked together for some period of time, number of years. You really should come in and not just abandon it, but think about what separation means to you. But she was gone. There was nothing I could do to get her to um, try to understand the psychological feeling and emotional consequences of leaving. I guess maybe she felt that it's an abandonment, but I never saw her again. Right, okay. Other people felt they didn't need it and then came to think uh, that they didn't need to have someone else uh, to support them after I left. But with conversation, they allowed me to refer them to others. Uh, one interesting case, I referred a fellow I had seen over many years who had really done wonderfully, <clears throat> probably my longest term patient. Early in his life, he'd had a lot of electroconvulsive therapy. No medicines had touched him. Then he had stabilized. Then we would see each other once a week, then less frequently. He had married. He had become a mental health professional himself. And I referred him to a young colleague who I thought the world of. I just thought they would do very well together so that he'd have someone to connect with if a crisis came up. And once I retired, I had no contact with my patients after that. Um, and I learned that my young colleague was leaving the hospital and moving to another state. And so I often wondered how this uh, fellow did who was going to have two losses of considerable consequence within a year. But I don't know the answer. But the other part that was hard was for me. Suddenly, I wasn't going to be a doctor. And it costs a fair amount to uh, keep your medical license and be able to prescribe certain medicines. So the time was coming for crunch time when I was going to have to give up my license. And then in, like in a Greek play, a deus ex machina, someone comes in from the wings and saves the day. I got an email which said, if you're not earning any money, but you're doing some teaching or non-remunerative work, which is what I was thinking of doing, you can keep your medical license, at least in New York State, without any fee. Wow. Right. What, a, what a breath of, you know, I just breathed a sigh of relief. And I've still got my medical license. I haven't paid for it in seven years. Right. <clears throat> but for me, psychologically, it's important to have the license. I write maybe two prescriptions a year, and I'm able to do that. And it makes a big difference to still feel uh, that I in some way still have within me part of the man I became in medical school. And I know that in some way it's almost silly to think of it that way, but that's my reality because I really am not seeing patients. I'm not prescribing for people at all on a regular basis, but having the ability and having that connection turned out to be quite meaningful to me personally. Talk about this. Uh, a couple of things just to talk about. You, you obviously touched on that you had prostate cancer. Was it? I'm guessing, well, obviously, thankfully, you're it's cured. Well, you're still here. Cured. Still, you're still here, which is good. Uh, what else? What other kind of while well, being a doctor and what other 
things have you had illnesses or ailments that you've kind of maybe overcome as and still still fighting strong at 77 yeah well i, I would say the prostate can I, i've had a, another another cancer which i a blood cancer which i now um am in remission from it's been over a year i'm hoping i'm cured we'll see i've had great treatment because of drugs that weren't uh in existence 10 or 15 years ago mm-hmm. and so those have been life-saving but the the prostate cancer was in some way the most interesting right. and the reason was that as part of the treatment um at one point i needed to take hormones uh which reduced uh, testosterone because the prostate cancer feeds and, and grows up based on male hormones. And right. it was interesting to go through a treatment with a substance which changed my own sense of myself again. Suddenly my beard was very thin. I didn't need to shave maybe more than once a week. Uh, my libido was diminished and so on. And you get to have a sense because when you're treating people, you haven't experienced what they've experienced. And so just that was the luck of the draw. That was the cancer I got. And as a result of it, I was on these hormones for a while. And I began to understand the power of hormone treatments. And today, uh, the place where we read about hormone treatment, the most of course is with people who are trans yeah, and um, how powerful those um, those treatments are in changing, in some way, your own sense of yourself and personality and drive and so on. Uh, fortunately, you, once I was done with my treatment, I went off those hormones and came back to myself, and now I'm shaving every day for the last six years and so on or more, because uh, that was back in 2013 that I went through that. But it was an interesting experience, and I think in some way it's humbling and it's meaningful. You obviously can not only treat people who have had what you've had. That wouldn't work. Is there, um, when it comes to people who do get prostate cancer or who start, is there a how is it a, a, a telltale sign that you can think you might have something wrong or how or how does that is there like a symptom? You, you know, generally you get a blood over a certain age, and it's controversial, I know, but I'm glad I got it. You get a blood test, a PSA, prostate-specific right. antigen. I think a lot of uh, internists or primary care doctors may start getting that test when men are in their 50s. Okay. Um, the other thing, obviously, is if someone has a history of any kind of a cancer, then their doctor's going to be looking for markers uh, because so many cancers can be inherited to a greater or lesser extent. But in my case, it was just a serendipitous finding, not a very happy one, but life deals you the hand that it deals you with you. And then part of resilience and so on is making the best of the hand you're dealt. And that goes back to our idea of rehabilitation that we talked about earlier. So I had it. I had surgery for it. The surgery seemed to go smashingly. I thought I was all done with it. And then my PSA started to go up again. And so I needed radiation treatment. And luckily that was successful. But I think uh, from a learning perspective, whether you have a heart attack, 
Some doctors, as we get older, have heart attacks. Others have cancer. Others may suffer injuries. Whatever it is that happens to you in your life becomes a learning experience which you can generalize to help you empathize with and I think be a, a more successful doctor. And as I said, some people pick their specialties because of the issues that have already hit them early on in life. What was your, uh, how did you connect originally with uh, Jamie from WGMS Media? You know, just a crapshoot. I, <laughs> Jamie, Jamie now lives in Savannah, which is in, yes. in the South. But yes. she used to live in Yonkers. And yes. so I was looking for ways to uh, get the word out about my book, Rear View, which is behind me. Mm -hmm. And I hope some people will find this interesting enough to go ahead and purchase. So I sent out a bunch of emails and she, she used to be in Yonkers, which is where my hospital was. Yonkers right. is about 20 minutes outside of New York City. I was a reverse commuter for 34 years to Yonkers. So I emailed a, a bunch of uh, different radio stations and uh, podcasts uh, centered in Yonkers. And she got back to me even though she was now in Savannah and we had a nice conversation and went from there. So she was the luck of the draw. Life, <laughs> life is capricious, right? Yeah. How did I, how did I get to you? Because I got to Jamie and she was kind enough to connect me with um, Ramsey Fraser in Scotland, whoever would have thunk it, but and there it was. There we go. Life's unpredictable. So let's uh, go into the sort of the now and the forward part. Uh, you've, written a book you've got your memoirs you want to try and get people to buy them and uh, what and buy your book and basically at 77 you seem like you've you've got yeah like an like a new you're full of beans still as you say you're still, not, you know, you're still but where, where do you see where where would you see yourself going or doing in the next well you're 77 well hey uh, what's, what's your thought what, what do you want to do what do you else you, you, you know, achieve? what's your bucket list i was probably saying <laughs> you, you know i i you know I, I think i really just like the phrase bucket list because i'm too close to the bucket <laughs> but but um what, what what i would say is what retirement gave me the ability to do mm. was to pick and choose um, when I was working, the hours were long. It was gratifying. I liked what I did. And fortunately, I had the resources for a comfortable retirement. And so I enjoyed writing my book. Um, I am thinking about if there's something else I can write. I've done some essays that I've circulated, mm -hmm. see if some of, some of them get picked up on or not. Um, I came to have a grandchild quite late in life because my son married uh, late. So my grandson is only three and a half years old, and I just love spending time with the little guy. Uh, they just live a 10-minute walk from us, so we get to see them a fair amount, and he spends time with us, and that's gratifying. I certainly had hoped that I'd be traveling more. COVID kind of put a damper on that, didn't it? Mm -hmm. uh, but I, yeah. I hope to get back to my favorite city, which is London again. And um, my son, as, as you know, spent... Uh, a semester of his uh, college years in Edinburgh. Right. So wow. he was in the bagpipe club. And as I told you, he lost his glasses on um, on Saddle Mountain. I think that's what it's called, Saddle Mountain. Uh, the Arthur's seat, probably? The seat, Arthur's seat. Arthur's seat. Yeah. Arthur yep. seat, yeah. Yep. 
And so, you know, I'd like to get back to traveling again. I'm hoping that this year things will calm down enough for us to do it. Um, I've tried doing some things that are purposeful. I joined the Institutional Review Board at Mount Sinai, and mm -hmm. I spent a year on that. That looks at research prog uh, protocols that have to be passed to make sure they're ethical and warranted. Um, and then I decided, well, I don't want to spend three days a month reading these detailed scientific protocols. So after a year, I let that go. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, it's kind of nice to have the freedom to pick and choose at this point in my life. And I've been loving doing these podcasts. I love doing the one with Jamie. I enjoyed very much speaking with Richard and the Scottish um, family, party. family party. You know, what, what made that one interesting for me, Ramsey, and I, I communicated uh, with Michael Willis a lot, who you yeah. put me in touch with, is how open they were to different points of view. Clearly, their politics was not my politics. Mm -hmm. um, but when we communicated by email to a large measure, it was clear that there were differences. But there was also common ground. And they were open to having that conversation. And I learned from their website some of the things that they didn't cotton to and didn't endorse. But I thought perhaps talking to a psychiatrist uh, and hearing the role that psychiatry can play in keeping families together mm -hmm. uh, through good treatment and stabilizing a family member who may have serious mental illness, uh, that there was an affirmative mes message that they could incorporate as well. And I hope that came out in the, um, in the recording I did with them. And so I really have to say, I appreciate how open they've been. I'm not sure that that would have happened with people with political differences in my country yeah. as much today where there's somehow a lack of respect from one side to the other and an ability to inability to um, kind of try to look for common ground. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I think, well, we're kind of, is, is there anything else? But one, how can people connect with you? If I know you're not really on Facebook, but I might have to, just your you, arm. You, uh, you know, you, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna demure on that <laughs> because I'm not in practice anymore. And so the people who would be communicating would be asking for professional advice often is what I've seen. And so I, I really would prefer to not do that. Right. I would prefer to say that if people need or think they may need mental health care, connect with a good psychiatrist in their area whatever country they're in, connect with a good psychologist and see whether those professionals think there's something that can be offered that will help you to improve your situation uh, or stabilize it so that you can function well in your life with your family, with your work um, and with intimacy. Those are the, the things that should be worked on. So where would be well for going if people want to have you on their podcast uh, and maybe where can be the best place to connect you with or um, you, uh, up would it be asking too much for them for you because I don't want to hand out my email to the oh. whole universe understandable well we can uh, connect if uh, those who are yeah. you can uh, connect with myself through this, WhatsApp or through my email you're welcome yeah, to connect we can. I know that's having... putting a burden on you, which is unfair. No, no. No, no. But at this point, um, 
my retirement is not contingent on on book sales, thank God, since, <laughs> since I seem to maybe be on the least seller list. But I'm glad for those who people who do buy it and, um, y- you know, who then use it as a basis for their own um, improvement in their lives using the profession to to help them gain what they need. So I'm going to leave it at that. But anyone, you know, if if Ramsey uh, wants to pass out my contact number through WhatsApp or my email, by all means, do it. So going for well, partly going forward, what do you? I'm guessing from to this day, you've been doing a few podcasts. uh, What do you? You've as I say, your books out. Have you got any still kind of, as I say, it's a quick question, any goals or things you might want to achieve or things you want to do? You said you want to travel, which is great. And when travel, you can get back over. You might be able to come up to Edinburgh and uh, meet Richard and people like myself for a coffee. Uh, But anything else that's kind of there that you maybe want to try and are you just going to take it day by day? And then Yes, you know, I think the great part of being retired, being 77, is if I do accomplish something further, I'll be pleased and I'll be happy with it. If I don't, I won't be chastising myself for it. Um, Because as I say, um, I really enjoyed my career as a psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. I enjoyed taking care of people and working with them and helping them with their troubles. Mm -hmm. I enjoyed teaching young professionals about my field. I enjoyed that educational piece. I love the advocacy piece and participating in New York State government as an advocate and chairing some of the councils set up by the governor uh, in New York. So I've had a lot of fulfillment from this, but I am no longer chasing uh, a goal. I don't have to make my resume richer. I, I suppose it would be morbid to say, since you use the phrase bucket list, I don't need to work to make my obituary glow more. It is what it'll be. Uh, And mostly I I want to enjoy family. I do some writing still, and I will hope that'll get out there a bit. Uh, And those are rewards enough at this point. So Um, there's a real change. You know, you're a young fellow because you're, you're, what, in your 50, 50? I'm (laughs) 40. I <laughs> like I could probably go back to that question. You know, a day over thirty-five. <laughs> I'm actually, you sorry to was, sorry to put you on the spot, but you're much younger than I am. You're I'm, decades. I'm, so I'm, you still have. I'm, I'm literally, literally, I'm forty-six. I'm forty-seven okay. this year. So it's the best part of thirty thirty years apart. <laughs> okay, so so you 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 have a lot of goals still. You are running a, a successful, I hope, uh, business that you told me about, a cleaning business. Yeah, You've done an intriguing set of podcasts. You're still making your mark on the world, and that's yeah, great. No, no. <laughs> and by the time you're 77, I think you will have had a sense that, wow, I achieved something in my business. I did something more broadly for the world by connecting people together through these podcasts and through these YouTube uh, events. And that you will maybe rest on your laurels a little bit and take some satisfaction in it. Mm-hmm. But my my guess is, my assumption is, and I hope I'm here to tell you in 30 years that I'm right, <laughs> is that, uh, that you will need 107. to be, Right, that's okay. If I'm a healthy 107, <laughs> that, that you won't 
feel that you need to be striving as much at 77 as you are at 46. You, you know, we go through phases in our lives and, and this is a different phase. I'm not, I'm not tr trying for notoriety and I'm not trying for uh, success in the same way at 77 as I was wanting to make my mark in my career and among my professional colleagues as much as I was 30 years ago. Cool. Well, let's give us some uh, final... Wisdom from the ages, right? I Wisdom know. from the ages. <laughs> if you're still around at 107, this could be an achievement. You might, you can maybe my bit, my obituary. I've been on about another 30 years of podcasts. <laughs> you know, there was a famous pianist, Horowitz. You've heard of him, Vladimir Horowitz, famous. Anyway. When Horowitz was in his 90s, I think it, it, the joke or not joke, the 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 word was he sent he signed a 10 year uh, recording contract. That's the kind of optimism we should all live with. There we go. Boom. That's the bit. Cool. Well, any final words you want to give to people? Who no, just, I just I... want to say first, thank you to Ramsey Fraser. Uh, he's been both a delight to talk with here, a delight <laughs> to talk with on WhatsApp because he's just has a good nature. I thank him for this and I thank him for putting me in touch with the Scottish Family Party for the recording I did with them. And I hope those of you who watch, listen or whatever, will consider going to Amazon, typing in my name, Barry Perlman, you can see the spelling, P-E-R-L-M-A-N is the last name and the word rear view. The name of my book will pop up and they unfortunately have discounted it a lot, so you won't have to pay as much as you should for it. Oh, you can send us. We'll have the link in the show notes. I will uh, send you everything right after we get off. I'll send you a blur. We'll have all these information where people can uh, read by his book. Or, uh, connect. This has been a lot of fun. I have really Good, enjoyed. Yeah, I, I've I've usually well, yeah. I'm just I'm enjoying just listening. It's been education, just learning about a journey of a obviously psychology and going to psychiatrist and. Just the different kind of, yeah, the things that have still been around but just change names that make think it's new and not new and, yeah, the medicines and treatments and just the kind of ins and outs and it's been interesting, the long hours and the right. kind of where you've been. It's, it's been, yes, yeah, an inter a life, the insight to a life of a, a Manhattan night in the, <laughs> basically, which is good. But, yeah, as we had it, and you might have heard the sound effects of the fire, it's like New York sound effects of the fire engines going through the streets. I heard them. <laughs> oh, well, I was going to say, you know, the, the, the proper background would be that song, New York, New York. If you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. Exactly. That's how New York is. <laughs> well, so, Devon, thank you. Well, Devon, who around the world, who is watching, listening, and are on the podcast, uh, whether it's been Facebook, Twitch, or YouTube uh, on StreamYard, uh, we thank you. And uh, hopefully you've learned or got something out of that, like I have. And uh, it's been, yeah, it's been interesting. It's been more of an education. It's like a seminar. It's been good. But um, it's all been intriguing. But thank you to everyone. And uh, you have a great rest of your day, wherever you are in the world. And uh, have fun. And thank you again, Barry. Thank you. Pleasure to be your guest. Okay. Take care, everybody. Thanks. Hang on.